Hi, I'm Ryan McGranigan, an aerospace engineer, data scientist, and all-around art, design, engineering, and science enthusiast. And you're listening to Origins, the show where we talk with thought leaders across eclectic areas of society about their origin stories and trajectories. The purpose is to highlight these thought leaders across different landscapes, to learn about the pivotal moments in their lives and to illustrate the ways of living that help you actionably re-examine your own assumptions and patterns. To provide ideas and stories to give you pause, bring you excitement, and be origins of new trajectories. Giorgia Lupi is an inimitable creator and visionary, an information designer, redefining the meaning of and how each of us see data. Trained as an architect in Ferrara, Italy, she went on to earn a PhD in design at Politecnico di Milano and then relocated to New York City from Italy, where she now lives. The amount that Georgia does is intimidating. She is a partner at the multidisciplinary design studio Pentagram, co-founder and design director at the data-driven design firm Accurat, and is an MIT Media Lab Directors Fellow, and is a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on New Metrics. She is a co-author of two brilliant books, Dear Data, an aspirational hand-drawn data visualization book, and my personal favorite, Observe, Collect, and Draw, a personal visual journal to uncover the patterns in your life. The original set of postcards from Dear Data has been recently required as part of the permanent collection at the Museum of Modern Art. Georgia believes that we can bring personality to data, visualizing even the, the mundane details of our daily lives to transform the abstract and uncountable into something that can be seen, felt, and directly reconnected to our lives, a concept that she calls data humanism. In 2017, she gave a TED Talk on her humanistic approach to data that has been viewed 1.3 million times. Georgia has been a dream guest for me since day one of Origins, and it is with utter delight to welcome her to the show. Georgia Lupi, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much, Ryan. That was quite an intro. Thank you very much. I'm <laughs> really honored to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Likewise. Uh, so you've described yourself as an incredibly obsessive person. I'm curious when you first realized that organization would be such a theme in your life and, and how you responded to that. <laughs> this is a, an anecdote that I, I, I like to tell, which is a um, sort of like a memory from my childhood that I got really reminded by, uh, reminded of by my mom many times. So when I was a, a young kid, and I mean, I do remember that, but my mom like kept bringing it up in some conversations. I used to really spend most of my time at my grandmother's tailor shop. So she was a seamstress. And one of the things that really helped me so much pleasure was like reorganizing her tools that she used to do her job so i would take out buttons and i will organize them by sizes by colors or even you know dividing them up if they had one single hole two holes and four holes or her ribbons and every day to me it was a different way to organizing all these like beautiful treasures and then when i got even older then i started to be able to write um tiny labels i would kind of like build some legends for her to understand <laughs> how i would organize them and so i think it was a, a 
pretty early manifestation of some sort of obsession for categorizations and organization um, that I have, I think, just brought up with me throughout, you know, my, my life. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so clear in your work. And you, you originally went to study architecture. And, and was that something that was a natural progression from this focus on organization and ability maybe in it? So, I mean, again, um, it's easy to say things in retrospect for sure. So right now, looking back, architecture makes a lot of sense for me. I have to say that I didn't exactly had a plan back then to what I wanted to be when I was, you know, when I would be grown up. But I really knew that I wanted to merge my need for numbers and structures and organization and principles that can, in a way, be scientific um, with also the the need and the pleasure that I got from creatively expressing myself. I used to draw a lot. I, you know, did all other kinds of performances in my, you know, teenager life. So I think that I also really wanted to be, for lack of a better word, creative. And if you think about it, you know, really architecture merges these two aspects, the building aspects and the structure and the numbers that are behind any kind of like an architectural project, but also the way that you're like designing in a way. Absolutely. Did that, so I'm curious about this, almost transition after you received your degree in architecture and then you decided, I think simultaneously, that you were going to start Accurate and do your PhD at the same time. So you made this kind of, seems like, headlong leap into design. Uh, Did you trace that to a moment? I know you mentioned that in retrospect, things kind of take a different form sometimes, but I'm curious what the moments are that led to that might have been. Sure, that's an interesting question. I think it was much more of a process. So throughout um, um, my studies and so say the five years that I studied architecture, there were some elective courses, the one that you were not like really, it was not mandatory to take, that you could take in different disciplines and design was one of that. At the time, there was only product design, so really kind of like furniture and object design, but the idea of designing um, and the and the broader culture around design that I started to learn about really felt fascinating. Um, and as much as I liked studying architecture, I was never, I would say, in tune with the scale of the building. And so in any case, you know, architecture for me was, when I started it, a way to non-choose and to be like, okay, let's do this, it makes sense, but I'll, but I'll make a choice after. And uh, I was lucky enough that my, my thesis, my master's thesis supervisor had a architectural studio when it was really much more experimental with design, design of different kind, even communication design. And so right after that, I worked for him um, for a little bit, uh, designing some interactive installations with him. And then I think it was really a moment when I understood that I was very fascinated about design. Then um, I moved to Milan and I worked at another interaction design uh, studio. Um, so, you know, before starting Accurate and starting my PhD, I've had a couple of years where I could work with people who were already experts in the field that really opened my eyes to the possibilities of working as a designer. And again, in that moment, it was still related to the physical space. So a sort of like a natural transition from architecture to designing exhibitions and interactive spaces. And then more and more, I decided that I really wanted to incorporate information in what I was doing that, you know, progressively became data. I'm sure we'll cover it up. But then, you know, by 2011, I think I was ready to start a new chapter that was um, focusing on design as a discipline. And so I started a PhD in communication design and information design. But at the same time, I was ready professionally to start my own adventure with two partners at the time. Um, that was kind of like more of a, a own self-own uh, business. Hmm. I think the relationship between 
uh, students and teachers is, is such an interesting one. And sometimes the most powerful thing is when a teacher pulls a student aside and says they see something in that student or suggests, have you tried this? Um, I'm curious from your time as an architect and even as a PhD student or during this intermittent period when you were uh, working with people and developing these skills, w- did people say, did mentors or teachers say to you specific things that you carry with you um, that, that you recall kind of in a normal way? That is an interesting question. I remember that I had a conversation with my uh, master's thesis supervisor. I, at the time, it was still for somehow an urban mapping, urban mapping and architectural project. But the way that I was very passionate about communicating this project, and uh, I built some sort of infographic back then about you know the percentage of users of this, and you know the way that over time things could evolve. We had these conversations when he said, "It feels like you're much more interesting in the representation of your project rather than actually you know building your architectural project." And back then, um, we shared. He shared with me some links to some information designers at the time that I started to look into, and so I think that that was the first conversation when he helped me, I would say, give a name to what I was mostly passionate about. And then I was lucky enough to then um, work with uh, Stefano Mirti. Is a, he is an Italian designer, um, a 15-ish, I think, years older than me, who uh, has been really challenging me for the whole time that I was working with him in Milan. He used to be one of the principals at Interaction Design Lab, which was an interesting interaction design spin-off of the Olivetti uh, Ivrea Design Center that was kind of famous uh, back then in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Um, and then, you know, they decided to create a spin-off that was an interaction design firm. And I've had plenty of conversations with him about, um, you know, I, I think it was much more personal about how to keep pushing forward, how to keep raising the bar, how to make a difference. And uh, yeah, I, I remember moments when I would go home and cry, but I think that ultimately it was beneficial for, uh, I think, my path. Oh, interesting. Um, I love yeah. I love that um, thinking about the ways that people keep pushing forward and, and challenging limits and, and rules. It's interesting because I think I've read somewhere that you are someone who's obsessed with rules, and there's also this component of design that is continually pushing against rules and limits. How do you recognize the limits that that you have in your life, or that you that you know we all create for ourselves, and how do you push against those? You know, Ryan, if we had three hours, we could really pretty much talk about that. Because I think, you know, there are also there are phases in our lives. Um, I definitely am intrigued and um, was probably a bit too obsessed in a past moment of my life that, you know, ended like even recently with rules. I still think that, I mean, design-wise, rules are very important um, to even, I mean, again, for lack of a better word, being more creative because sometimes having a framework and a format and having some defined rules can actually help you think outside the box as opposed to saying, I have a blank page, I have no concepts, I can do whatever I want. So, you know, these are the two end of the spectrums, but for sure, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a value in that. In my specific type of design, I live by rules because working with data means that any kind of design choice, whether it is a color, a symbol, a size, it is mapped 
to something, to a parameter. Then, of course, there's a lot of intuition that goes into how you map that and how you translate it. But, but every time you set up a system of rules for yourself, you build a legend for yourself for how to translate numbers and quantities and parameters into data. So um, into data visualization, I'm sorry. So that, you know, I think it's a, it's a beautiful way of thinking about rules as a the catalyzer for design in data. And then, you know, in personal life, I think it's 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 an interesting moment for me where I am exploring how to let go, how to live with less rules and not to embrace the uncertain um, way more than I used to do. So it's, it's an interesting moment of actually pushing myself out of my comfort zone where my comfort zone was actually planning and hyper planning and being sure about things and making you know space for my rules and structure whereas I'm I'm, I'm really letting go now hmm. I love that I think that um in the state of the world we're recording this in, in July 2020 and obviously uh, there's civil unrest and there's a global pandemic and and I think a lot of people are being confronted with the same challenge of you know we can no longer we can no longer um, continue to paint a, a pseudo reality for ourselves where we're in control in a lot of ways. I think that's very interesting. I feel like, though, I think, you know, I am, I'm being really honest with you, Ryan. I was in denial of this pandemic for the first two months. <laughs> I didn't even bring home my uh, monitor to just really be having a proper <laughs> conversation. I was like, no, this needs to end. This is unfair. Um, like really, I, I think I was really in denial, but, uh, but you know, with some patients of, you know, friends and people who we're talking to, uh, and some self, I think, you know, self-work and work on myself, I'm, uh, I've accepted, I just think I really accepted that there's only so much that we know, there's only so much that we can anticipate this is going to be with us as a state of the world for a long time. And so I'd rather, you know, not. I also think the one point of view that like helped me shift a perspective was think about myself in two, three years. What do you want to describe these as, oh, remember that time that I, you know, dragged myself to sleep miserably waiting for this to be over? Or do I want to remember these as, do you remember that time in COVID that we did X, Y, Z and we were thinking about that? You know, I think it's really a matter of making sure that these moments will still be an interesting memory uh, for the future. Yeah, I love that. I, you know, do you have? It's tough to to keep that awareness and that perspective. Sometimes, do you have daily practices that help you step back and think? Oh, well, here's what I want to be focused on, um, especially now. Yeah, I mean, I journal a lot, so I I I think that every day which I journal somehow. Uh, sometimes it's just a few sentences. Sometimes it's you know reminding myself of something that happened that I want to capture and record. Some other times are um, actually reading some of the goals and things that I set for myself and rephrasing them for the day in a way. And I think that that in any case helped me just be in touch with the things and aspects that are important to me. Then I used to be much more self-disciplined in doing yoga every morning. I admit that during COVID, I sort of, you know, <laughs> let go of it. But um, but yeah, physical exercise, whether it is taking a bike ride or doing yoga, I think it also helped me um, take a step away from the computer and away from the madness of my days and reconnect to something that is much more true to myself and my body. And that even on itself, it feels like it's a, it's a self-care in practice. But but no, really, other than that, I think it's it's just about finding your own way to 
be in touch with what makes you feel better. And sometimes we can't go there because we are trapped in our thoughts and sometimes these thoughts are negative. Um, I also would say that we need to be patient with ourselves. I mean, again, sure, we're expected to, if it feels like we're expected to be very productive in this moment when we have more time and to be like growing personally because we're dealing with uncertainty and to foster connections because we have a different way to do it. Yes, for sure, but also we need to be patient with ourselves. And if things come naturally, okay, but it's also okay to have days in which you feel low, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to talk about the day. I mean, I think on, on podcasts like this and the news, obviously there's this bent towards painting, you know, just sharing the what, what works, uh, the high moments. Um, and so I'm always curious about how people navigate those low, those low moments or... Um, in your case, I'm curious specifically about what you do on days or moments when you feel uncreative or in some way incapable. Is there a practice that you have to un- overcome those or how do you maintain that patience that you described with yourself? Yeah, well, I think I'm particularly lucky because I work with a team of people. And so sometimes the ways in which we creatively help each other, I, you know, one person might start with a a seed of an idea and then we bring it up to life and there's someone who's making, you know, is asking a critical question. I mean, I think that all of that helps in a way uh, to move the project and the process forward, even in moments in which you personally feel uncreative. And, you know, for personal projects, I just think that if it is, you know, a day that I'm like, okay, I would like to work on this project, but, you know, I'm there, I'm not there yet. I'll just, I just try and not do it and be like, okay, I mean, if there's a deadline for a client, for sure, I'll respect it. And also I'll meet the deadline and the client will also help you, you know, be accountable. So I think that that in and of itself is something that helps you just move forward for personal projects. I also, I always think that if you really have something to say through a project and if the project and the idea is meant to see the light and to be out, it will come a moment in which you'll do it. And in moments when I feel like I don't, yes, I do feel frustrated, but I also try to imagine that there'll be a better moment for me to work on it, maybe the day after. And I think it's also about identifying if there's something from the external world or from the way that you organize your schedule that prevents you to be creative. Sometimes it might be just a no, meaning like, I'm just not feeling in the mood. But I realize that, for example, I work very well if I have an extended moment of time for working on creative projects. And so I am just not stressing myself out anymore if I don't come up with anything come up with anything creative in a 20 minute break in between calls, you know, so that's already a recognition that I need to allow myself the space for creating in a certain way. And I realized, for example, that I don't work very well in my apartment. And of course, I mean, now we're all trapped, but knowing that the space of the office and the space of, you know, having a different room with a table to go to, or the space of being able to work in a coffee shop, it's something that for me really fosters creativity. So I'll try to beat myself up a little less if in my apartment I'm not very creative. So again, identifying all of these circumstances can happen, uh, can help us to be more patient with ourselves. Yeah, that's, yeah, the, the space is, is very important, um, of course. Um, you know, you, you do so much, and you mentioned that you, know, you have to say no to some things. I'm, I'm wondering what you've become better at saying no to. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, that was a struggle of mine years ago. I think it's a struggle for everybody because you don't want to say no to opportunities. You don't want to let people down. Also, you want to help everybody. If somebody else asks you for your time, you feel like, yeah, I would love to help this person out. Um, but I realized at some point that a lot of my bandwidth was dealing with these requests that I felt frustrated about because I felt that, you know, in a way they were taking away the time that I knew I wanted to dedicate to my practice, to my projects, and uh, but I felt that I needed to. And so I just really decided, a, some, again, I, I set some rules for myself about the things that I you know, would say <laughs> yes to and no to. And specifically because, for example, I'm not a public speaker and I'm not a teacher, all of these activities that are more about lecturing, public speaking, or mentoring students are things that need to not take up so much of my time. I know that there are people that I know, professionals that I know, they also teach, and so they have so much more real time that is like the time that they build in in their way of teaching to mentor students and to reply and to give time to students. I, I wish I could. I think that my personal way of mentoring is working with my team and, you know, being with them and trying to be a mentor for them and for the people that I worked with in the past. And so that is my way to give back in that sense. And then for public speaking, I mean, I guess I have my personal, which are really my personal rules on, you know, what are the um, opportunities that I'd like to say yes to and then like to say no to. And, you know, for project uh, collaborations, I mean, it needs to feel really right. It needs to feel like a thing that I really wanted to do. Otherwise, I know that it will not be a success. And I know that, you know, the other person and I will drive each other crazy because it's not meant to be. And I think it's also important when you can to then reply to the requests that you have. I mean, I have a bit of a backlog of things that now I need to reply. But, you know, <laughs> even if it's a no, just acknowledge thanks to people who are thinking of you in that context and just explain that in the moment on time, you just don't have the bandwidth. I feel that people appreciate it more than a, an answered email. Right. Um, thank you for sharing that. Sure. I, I want to ask you about this uh, period when you moved from, from Italy to New York. Uh, you know, I think you, you described having fallen in love with, with New York City. Um, what was that period like? And how, why did you fall in love with New York? Um, so I came here for the first time in August 2011. So that would be nine years ago. And uh, together with my, I mean, at the time, boyfriend, now is my ex-husband. And, uh, we decided to spend a month. We had the month of August. Also, we were collaborating um, because he was one of my partners at my previous company. So we decided to spend the month of August for the vacations that we have, um, but also like for the work that we needed to do in a city as opposed to just, you know, traveling around. And so we spent the whole month of August in New York and I really just fell in love immediately with the energy of the city, with the possibilities, with the pace, with the people, with the diversity, with with everything that, you know, we love New York for. And so then we went back and I figured out my plan to come back um, a, a year after. And so within my PhD that at a time just started, I applied for being a, a visiting researcher abroad. And so, you know, they accepted me here at Parsons, um, the new school in New York starting uh, September 2012. And so that was uh, that was my entry point to New York. And then again, once I got here, I uh, also wanted to find a way to get clients for my, at the time, business accurate. Um, and so we started, uh, we started to do this, and I just never left. Wow. And since arriving in New York, I feel like you have been a, a force in terms of 
this innovation, uh, creativity. Maria Popova, who people may recognize from the blog Brain Pickings, wrote of you, Georgia Lupi bridges imaginative wildness and deliberate creative constraint to illuminate the most human and humane dimensions of what we so coldly term data. The sum total of our habits, experiences, and unquantifiable fragments of being that make us who we are. And, and that quote is, is um, so brilliantly Maria Popova. She just writes beautifully. But I thought, just in reading your material, ex- material experiencing your art, I thought that that quote just really well captured kind of the past years that you've been in New York. Um, and She's really good with words. So. <laughs> I, you know, how do you find this structure in the complexity of the world um, to represent kind of the spaciousness and, and help expand the spaciousness of, of people's lives? I mean, people come to your work and, and they see things in new ways. And I know that you've described this as data humanism. Um, I'd love for you to, to talk about that in whatever way is meaningful to you. Well, I mean, this is this is very flattering to hear. I don't, I mean, to be honest, I'm very passionate about my work and what I do. I don't feel so prolific. prolific. I don't feel so, <laughs> you said, oh, you've done so much. I mean, I, I, I want to trust you, but I still feel that I could do much more and I could have done much more. But, you know, I think that this is pretty much everybody's never satisfied with what they do. Um, I I don't know. I think that for me, I come to data and I came to data from already a humanistic approach. I'm a designer. I'm not a data scientist. I don't code. I draw with data. I'm much more interested in general in the qualitative aspects of data rather than the actual numbers. And then to me, data are fascinating about a lens that we can use to see our human nature through. So it's about like analyzing one subject at a time and adding details. So I guess it really, this is just my approach. So this is why data for me is never the ending point. Data is never the answer. Data is a tool that I have um, as a designer to really harvest reality and focus on subjects that I'm passionate about, whether it is our society, again, our human nature, our relationship aspects of that, and then quantify it and qualify it in form of data, and then use it as a design material to tell these stories. So I guess it to me is just really a natural way of thinking and natural way of approaching things. I usually also say that, I mean, one of the things that I like the most is crafting my data sets, building my data sets, whether it is from personal data collection or whether it is for really even for bigger projects going to find ways to create new data sets as opposed to only looking at a data set and visualizing it. So I guess, you know, I'm not sure if I'm really answering your question, but it's about seeing data this way and then really it has endless possibilities. Hmm. I think people who look at uh, some of your work are, I mean, at least I'll speak from a personal perspective, you know, it's, I'm in awe of, of the work that you produce, kind of the complexity when you you take it at the large scale and then you step closer to it and you start to understand all of the, the intricacies of it. Um, what does it feel like to you when you begin a new project or a new piece? Um, it feels exciting, the moment <laughs> of <laughs> starting a new project and having the idea. It's always exciting. I think that Again, for the work that I do, I'm lucky because every time is actually really digging very deep and immersing yourself in a new world because there's a new topic. You one day are working with a healthcare system, the other day you're working with the food industry, the other day you're working with, you know, 
um, no, a cultural data set about how countries are doing with indicators. And so there's this deep immersion on the content first that is always a part of my job, which is understanding the context and figuring out if there's data already or if I need to go and find data. So that's really the research part that I call data research or data discovery. And then in parallel, you start to envision ways in which these can take a visual form. And again, depending on whether you're designing for a static report or for interactive installations or for a mobile app, your mind already start thinking about these data in different ways because you know that readers, visitors, or users will experience them in different ways. And then depending on how much you want it to be emotional and personal or how much you want it to be, I would say, more functional, I think you already can start to parse for visual metaphors that can be your reference for the design. And so as much as every time the process is different, and I wouldn't say that I have a um, codified process. I mean, there are macro stages that somehow, you know, kind of like always fall in place. Right. We've had, and I've had the good fortune of, of having some experience working with IDO, which is a, a design firm as well. Um, and they talk about the approach of being user-centered, which relates to me to this, you're understanding the context. Um, what do you avoid when you're first starting a project? And, and I kind of want to frame that because we, we have the, the audience for this podcast is uh, decidedly a term that I call anti-disciplinary, which I know you're probably familiar with from the Media Lab. Um, but it's this idea, working in the spaces between fields. Um, and I think that this this uh, needing to humanize what we're looking at and what we're working on is something that applies to all professions and all applications. And yeah. you know, when you're trying to capture that component of it, are there things that you try and avoid or that pe- mistakes people make when they do what they're doing? I, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't talk about mistakes that people make. I think that what I try to avoid when I start any type of project is looking for existing data visualizations as a reference. Mm. I might look into existing data visualizations to understand what has been done, but then I really try to think about, like, you know, to start from scratch, think about the data, think about the context, and be visually inspired by other things. Normally it's the world of art or even, you know, images that I find in the the scientific world or nature that are much more inspiring to me as a way to translate what's in the data, being very faithful to the data, as opposed to saying, oh, you know, somebody has already done a timeline, a timeline with this scatterplot about this data. And then I think that then your mind starts to think in regular charts more than in, okay, what's in the data? What's the best way to really represent what it is in this data? And sometimes it's not a conventional form. Sometimes you need to invent a new one. Right. So understanding what has been done before, I, I love the... Um... I think it's a tension almost in um, trying to remain within what's familiar, what's comfortable, and also stepping into something that's uncomfortable, something that's unknown. Um, and that tension, you know, I think you hear a lot uh, from from a number of artists and even and, and even scientists and mathematicians talk about that tension um, as being something that guides them. It, is that something that enters consciously into your work and in your life? That's interesting. I've never really thought about that. I know that that might not apply to my normal life. I mean, somehow it does, actually. But it really definitely applies to my work. I I love the uncomfortable and I love the unknown. I love it. I really love it. And so 
any time that with a project I can venture out and do something that I've never done. I mean, I really honestly, in every project, I'll try to do something that I've never done before, but really in a way in which many of the projects that I work on, it was not even a reference for a similar project. I mean, maybe mixing brand identity campaigns and data and, you know, like doing an entire wallpaper of visualization. I mean, I think that like many of the projects that I work on and the one that I like the most, there's never have been a reference for that. So I love that. I don't like to do things that I've done before. I don't like doing things that people have done before. And uh, I think that that guides me very much. So I wouldn't really say that I... And experiencing a tension between the comfortable and the uncomfortable, I really thrive by putting myself in the uncomfortable work-wise. Hmm. Did that factor into uh, shifting almost? I don't know if it was a shift or, or just kind of an adding more, but uh, joining Pentagram, joining the MIT Media Lab, this, these are things that have happened in the past few years, uh, and, and I'm curious what drove those. I mean, I think it's, it's much more of the fact that because I'm so attracted to things that are very new and that feel even unfamiliar when it feels like the right opportunity, I sort of like looked for this opportunity. I think that the energy that you put out there then kind of like gives you these opportunities back. And and I, I, I would put it in a different way. So probably the reason why I said yes to Pentagon, yes to the MIT, and yes to moving to New York, and yes to this experiencing, it's because I thrive in the novelty of new chapters and new creative environments. Um, so I think that, 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 that's that. Then, then, of course, seeing that over time, once you make these decisions and once you, and all of the times that, you know, sort of like you do it, the world doesn't end, you've learned, you've enjoyed, it creates some sort of confidence that, you know, you can do it once more. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's almost unusual sometimes to find uh, your level of comfort with uncomfortability. Um, is it that experimentation? Is it just putting yourself out there and recognizing that it's going to be okay? Is that how you develop that confidence? Or is there other, are there other things that you continue to use mm. to push yourself? Yeah, it's an interesting question. To me, it's really the gut feeling of, I need to do it. I mean, I have no idea how to, but I really need to do this now. And the the dreaming of a, the dreaming of the moment in which that will feel home and that will feel comfortable it's it's great and then then after that I need something more so, <laughs> so there's always the attention to something else but I don't I mean to be honest I don't feel that this is unhealthy because as long as you then build some structure and build some foundation to what you're doing and you don't constantly jump from one thing to another I think that the drive and longing for some growth of a kind um, is really is really you know a good motivation to have and especially for example for me at Pentagram right now, I mean, Pentagram for me is not the next thing. I mean, it was a, a decision to be like, this is my next chapter. I want mm. this to be my next long chapter. And the reason why I feel confident in saying that is that I know that within Pentagram, I'll be throwing myself out in the unknown every single day in any single projects for how the environment is built, for the, uh, the brilliance partners that I have, or, you know, the level of, the challenges that we face here. So that feels, you know, that feels comfortably uncomfortable. Yeah. Or uncomfortably comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so, it's beautiful to me that such a, a simple rephrasing, even in your own mind of not the next thing, but a next chapter can be so impactful. And um, 
just reinforces for me something that I've been thinking a lot about lately in, in that, you know, the impact that language has on us and, and choose enriching our language and choosing meaningful language uh, for what we want to represent and, and be is, is so important. Um, where do you, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, it really is. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, um, where do you get new language? Where do you turn uh, to, to learn new language? Uh, you mean new language to reframe things for myself or in any in any way that it that it takes meaning for you i think you know it's interesting that of course english is not my first language so i needed to i needed to learn how to communicate in the language that now i use the most pretty much when i was an adult already because as much as yeah i have studied basic grammar at school but you know when i came to the u.s i was not really a fluent speaker so i think there has been the first few years when I felt deeply uncomfortable with the language because I wanted to express myself better and I wanted to, you know, get my point across and to be the person that I knew I could be, but I couldn't. And well, that struggle, uh, the fact that then, you know, I, now that I feel comfortable and I felt able to overcome it, as, as many of us, I mean, New York is like primarily made of people who are not, you know, in the U.S., primarily people whose first language is not, um, um, you know, it's not English. I think that having learned that and having experienced how much being able to speak another language and being able to communicate in another language with people who are different from you really brings you back in terms of wow, different perspective and different, you know, even way of thinking because speaking a new language, I think that triggers your brain in a different way. It's uh, it's something that is so compelling that not that I'll be learning any new real language, like, you know, another language soon, but the idea of then using language as a way to train the brain and using even, you know, visual languages to different visual languages to translate things all the time. It's just, it's just very compelling. Um, I'm just like kind of like talking in circles here because I'm thinking about how do you reframe things for yourself? I guess in that case, it's about using language as a way to defining a perspective and a situation and words can just help you get closer to what you already sort of like know that you mean. So it's much more about reframing the situation and putting on new lenses and probably just like getting out of your like tiny perspective and, you know, trying to put yourself in a different way. And then you'll use language to be able to grasp you know, the, the thoughts that you have about that situation. And there's such a, <laughs> no, it's, it's, I, I resonate with, with that so much. There's, um, such a spaciousness, even in silence. And it, and it feels like, like in your experience, being immersed in a new language, uh, likely you're going to be speaking less. Uh, you're going to be listening more. And there's such a spaciousness in that. And I think that that's one way that, um, people can discover new language is uh, is learning to just um, speak less in a lot of ways. Um, and it sounds like you, you had that. That is very true. And as much as it is frustrating to not be able to fully communicate and so then you need to listen more also because, I mean, especially in conversations with multiple people, it's not so easy in your second language to just chime in at the right moment, the right sentence. So sometimes you just like, you do need to be more in the listening side. Um but, uh, but you acquire a lot of perspective and I think you start to be more focused on really actually what people say rather than how you want to respond. Right. <laughs> it's a great value. Exactly. And another way of immersing yourself in a new language, so to speak, is, is working with new disciplines. Um, and so yeah. one thing that we talked a lot about in this show is 
uh, again, anti-disciplinary. Um, how do you break down the silos between disciplines so that we can tackle some more of our complex challenges? That's a an approach that the MIT Media Lab um, really uh, is is eye-opening in and, and uh, a pioneer in. Um, what has been your experience? Have you been starting to work with new domains, scientists, engineers, uh, while at the Media Lab? Well, yeah, I mean, not yet. My Media Lab affiliation is a very interesting one because it is a, it, it's called Director's Fellows and it's a fellowship that starts and then pretty much leaves you a possibility of having open-ended conversations with the members of Media Lab. So I have not started a project project yet, even though as a designer, I've collaborated with them a few projects. So, um, but, but yeah, experiencing the diversity of approaches that people who are in any way interested in media and technology for building a better life bring to the media lab, even being part of the meetings and the conversations that we have, I feel really it opens up a designer's mind because, I mean, again, you you talk to people who have futuristic visions, but they come from a technology background. You talk to people who have like a deep understanding of biology and the ways that our human bodies work, and then they're applying it to the way the new technologies are built. Or you have people who come from a completely humanistic background and they're exploring territories such as space and uh, space discoveries together with astronauts. And so that is the beauty of the Media Lab and that is the beauty of being part of these conversations. And if it ends up in collaboration, well, even better. But I think it's, it's about envisioning a future that is different than the ones that we could envision if we were only siloed. That's very fascinating to me. And, you know, if you also trace back the history of the Media Lab and you look at some documents that they uh, put out in the early 90s, I mean, we were pretty much foreseeing things that we use now, such as the Apple Watch or, you know, talking to a device in a different way. And so I guess it's uh, it's really an interesting space to be. Um, and I'm, I feel very lucky and, and honored, honored that I'm part of that family. Yeah, I would love to just talk at length with you about um, design for space. I'm, I'm an aerospace engineer and a space physicist and someone who's been really trying to bring in art and design into what I do. And I know that that's something that's going on at the Media Lab as well. I think it's really interesting because talking with people, you almost there's almost no section of society that uses the word beautiful more than physicists. And so I think... Um, I would I would love to 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 know what conversations you would have with physicists and and how um, you might work with some of the space groups at uh, the Media Lab. That'd be great. Well, I haven't started yet to really work with them, but I'll definitely keep you posted. I have a I have a big fascination for space as as all of us, but also I was lucky enough in the past to work with an astronaut. Um, so it was a very experimental project. Uh, so she was Samantha. Christopheretti, she was the first Italian woman astronaut, and so she uh, discovered my work and our work, and before being launched on this six-month-long expedition to the International Space Station, so she contacted us and she asked, can we, is there, is there a possibility to do something with the data of my mission, but do we to reach out to people? So something that is not a technological dashboard about what I'm be doing in space, but something that really speaks to my mission, which has always been to open up the possibility of space to, you know, different people to dream for. And we created a very human digital experience where people would log in and, you know, you'll fall on a on a very abstract map, like showing your location, but not really. And the idea was that everybody that logged in at the same moment could 
look at the stars and look at Samantha flying above them as if they were looking at the stars and the space together. And so it was only a simple interaction. You could say hello to a random person and you, your hello in form of an art will reach a person in New Zealand and will reach a person in, um, you know, in South Africa that at the same time were looking at Samantha above you. And, uh, and then you could say hello to Samantha and Samantha could wave back and everything was visualized in real time. But if you think about it, it was much more about our human curiosity about space rather than the whole technology that was around the mission. And so I think that to me, that, that, that's what's really fascinating. It's one of my favorite pieces. I will link it in the show notes as well as the rest of the work that we've mentioned. I, I love that piece. Um, thank you. I think it, it does, it uniquely helps people step into different perspectives. The, the very local perspective of one person on the ground uh, the space-based perspective um, with the astronaut in space and, and seeing the same thing at the same time and then connecting across the world. It's uh, its a brilliant piece, uh, so thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. And so, Georgia, I know that you have an, an enormous amount going on, and I want to be respectful of your time. So I'd love to end with something that we do each show called uh, just a lightning round. It's um, just a series of questions with uh, short answers, uh, short question and answers. So are you ready for the lightning round? Oh, I think I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Cool. So question number one, what is one book that you feel has impacted you unlike other people? What book do you have a special relationship to? The Image of the City by Kevin Lynch. Ooh, okay. Yeah. I'll have to look that up. I don't, I'm not aware of it. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's it. Okay, thank you. What passion outside of your own field has most importantly helped set your path? I would say playing the piano. Ooh. It has been, I think, my way to get into information design. Because if you think about it, music notation is in and on itself a translation system from playing to abstracting and translating to playing again. So from real life to communicating. So I think playing the piano. Beautiful. And how long have you played the piano? Oh, I'm. Now I'm completely rusty and not really in tune with my, you know, uh, piano skills, but I used to play when I was a kid. I started when I was nine and, uh, you know, I, I kept playing since, you know, throughout my teenager life and early 20s. Very cool. Number three, what is making your heart sing right now? What's mm. been a latest passion of yours? A passion. Um, or curiosity. I'm deeply interested in romantic relationship as a topic for data discovery or discovery in general and how you form relationship and what gets to be a meaningful relationship and the tension between the online world that we live in and, you know, the in-person uh, world. And so, I mean, one of the things that I want to explore in the future is, you know, romantic relationship through data. Very interesting. I just had to share very quickly. I've been using your Observe, Collect, and Draw, which is a brilliant personal journal, um, and I've been thinking a lot about opportunities. And you know, I've had I've received advice and, and seen in different places people saying, you know, choose big desires uh, because you can't follow through on all desires. And so I've been trying to understand how I see that in my life, and 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 trying to capture information, some data about how I'm thinking about each of these. And uh, and it's just in the nascent stages of that visualization. But um, it's just wow. such a cool journal. It's such an expensive journal. So thank, thank you. Thank you. I'm grateful. Uh, well, send me, send me any, any, 
any piece of design that you'll do with it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll post it. You have a you have a great uh, community on on social media that will post people to um, to join. So the final question that I like to ask is, what is one thing that you have truly and fully screwed up? In life, in you know, in life and work, um, whatever whatever comes to mind, and, and this could be maybe maybe a perceived failure that set you up for later success, for instance. I mean, really, there's there's one thing that comes to my mind that is a personal that is personal, but you know, why not share it? I think, um, yeah, I screwed up the. <laughs> relationship with my dad who unfortunately is not here anymore and I think that that is something that three years ago when he suddenly passed and our relationship was really not in a good place it taught me a lot about about relationship and about how um you know you can't give things for granted you need to really be fully communicative of your feelings and of how you know, must you love a person while they are here? And I mean, it feels it sounds such a cliche to, to say, but I think that that is some that is the thing that I think is screwed up, and that you know, if I could go back, I'll do it differently. But you know, I'm also trying to be positive and um, and really positive about the fact that that taught me a lot about you know how to have relationships now that mm-hmm. come from a place of really all of the time acknowledging and communicating the importance of that relationship for me to the other person without without boundaries. Right. And, you know, sometimes in response to that question, cliches do uh, do come up, but I think it's it's different w- with the, the realness um, and, the, and the rawness that people bring to it. So I, that's a I mean, that's a message that, that really hits home, I think. So, so thank you for sharing that, Georgia. Of course, you're welcome. It's it's been a pleasure talking with you. I will let you get back to the numerous things that I'm sure you have going on. But but thank you so much for joining us on Origins today. Thank you, Ryan, for having me, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Likewise. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for another episode of Origins. Thanks again for joining us. And if you're finding value in these episodes or these conversations, please share this with people that you think might also find value. The whole purpose of these are to provide thought that may help you see your own experience in a new way. And we would love to hear from you too. So please visit us at originspodcast.co and leave us a review on Apple if you feel strongly about the show. Thank you very much and we'll talk to you next time.